This morning we are continuing our series in the book of John, what we've termed the red letter promises, the promises of Jesus in the gospel of John. And this morning's message is really one of um, reassurance and encouragement, I hope. Um, There is some challenge in it. But what it really comes down to, in a nutshell, is what we were singing about in that last song, the simple gospel about knowing Jesus, about knowing God, and what that means for our lives. And what I would say right now is if you remember anything from this message, remember what Elsie just read to us, right? Remember John 10, 27, and 28. Remember the memory verse for today, um, and that will do you just fine. That doesn't mean you can switch off for the next... 55 minutes, just kidding. Um, But remember that. So there are seven of these I am sayings uh, in the Gospel of John, and today we are up to the sixth. There's just a sort of a quick reminder. These are, uh, they're really, they're sayings that kind of characterize um, Jesus. They tell us, it's him telling us about himself, giving us pictures to explain kind of who he is and what he, what he does for us, what he does in general, not just for us, and really need kind of no room for there to be other, um, certainly not other saviors. Today, possibly, um, we're considering what is possibly the most kind of exclusive sounding of the seven, I am the way and the truth and the life. I mean, these are all pretty exclusive statements, but... Now, you may recall that two weeks ago, John Toner taught from... Um, John chapter 11 on um, the raising of Lazarus and how God calls us into new life and how he said, Lazarus, come forth. And you may have noticed how today we're stepping all the way up to John chapter 14. Now, a lot has happened since Lazarus was raised from the dead. I'm not going to attempt to teach through three chapters of John this morning. But we do need to set the kind of the context of these things that have been going on since Lazarus was raised um, and just do, it's not really a recap because we haven't been over it the first time, but just a, a little bit of a kind of summary that shows us the context in which Jesus is speaking these words to his disciples. So we start in John 11, part two, after Lazarus is raised from the dead, and More or less the first thing that happens at this point is that many people put their faith in Jesus. That's an awesome thing. They hear that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. People put their faith in him. But the downside to this is that the rulers of the time take notice. And the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, plots to kill Jesus. In fact, Caiaphas, who is the chief priest at the time, makes this quite extraordinary statement where he says, oh, I'm on the wrong page, one moment please. He says, so the, sorry, I should just back up a second. So the Sanhedrin are saying to themselves, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So there's an element here in that the Sanhedrin are worried for the state of the Jewish nation. There's also an element here that they're worried about their own status. Right? They say very specifically, take away our place and our, and our nation. People are going over to him. We don't want that. We want them to think of us as like, important and 
ruling things. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest in that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now, what he's saying to the council is, we just need to get rid of this guy, and that will be good for the whole country. What's ironic about this, and I mean, John goes on to record it specifically, he didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied. He's actually prophesying that Jesus would die for the Jewish people and also for the Gentiles. But that's not what he means, right? They're plotting to kill Jesus here like, yeah, we just need to sacrifice. We need to sacrifice this one guy, take him out of the picture for the good of the nation. And of course, the extended irony here is that even though they did indeed execute Jesus um, shortly after this, like in, certainly in terms of history, 35, 40 years later, the Jewish nation crumbles and is overrun. So at this point, Jesus stops moving around publicly among the Jews. He withdraws to a village called Ephraim by the desert with his disciples. So there's this kind of seesaw thing going on at the moment. Big excitement, then kind of caution and concern. And after a time, they return to Bethany, which is where Lazarus lives again. And while they're there, they have a meal um, in honor of Jesus, and this is when Mary anoints Jesus with, um, with an expensive perfume, a, a pint of pure nard. I've never seen nard. I don't know what it looks like or smells like, but it's expensive perfume apparently. And more people are coming to Jesus. More people are coming to see Lazarus and to see Jesus. And more people are putting their faith in him. And so the chief priests now plan to kill Lazarus. This is like a you know, murder mystery movie plot going on here. It's like, oh, we need to take that guy out. Oh, wait, they're following this person, or they're interested in seeing this person. We need to take him out as well. And then the next day after this time is when Jesus enters Jerusalem in what we know as the triumphal entry. And I've put triumphantly in quote marks here because... We call it the triumphal entry because it is imitating, it's the symbolism um, with the palm branches and cloaks being laid uh, on the road in front of Jesus. It's the, it's, that's what was done for a king returning victorious from battle, right? So he's, the people are sort of recognizing him as a king. But, but Jesus is so, certainly not kind of, um, uh, well, let's just say not resting in triumph. He knows, in fact, Luke 19 recounts how Jesus weeps over Jerusalem as he is entering the city because he knows that it could be saved. The people of Jerusalem could be saved and, and, and will be eventually, but they're going to reject him um, and his greatest battle still lies ahead. Right? He is about to suffer greatly, go to the cross and have the wrath of God poured out on him because of the sins of us, of people. And when they get to Jerusalem, Jesus predicts his death, not for the first time. So again, there's this huge kind of seesaw going on between the sort of the the pseudo victory parade and Jesus saying to his disciples, I'm going to be handed over and killed. It's kind of interesting in this stage that the people who believe are the people who have seen what Jesus has been doing. If we read in Uh, John chapter 12 in uh, verses 10 and 11 says, so this is when the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. But then there's also this bit of discourse when Jesus has entered Jerusalem, 
where the crowds speak up to him. He says, um, now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. But the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? And it's interesting that this is the, actually the only time recorded in the Gospels that someone other than Jesus uses the term son of man. And it's almost like they're asking, like, you know, you, you're sort of, you're positioning yourself as this kind of self-styled son of man, but what does that mean? Because what we understand is that the son of man is going to stay forever, so how can you say he's going to be killed? Now, there's nothing specifically in the law, the Torah, um, that says this, that... Um, that, that the Christ will um, uh, remain forever. But there are certainly references to it in the Old Testament. So the people here may be referencing Psalms, Psalm 89, Psalm 110, um, Isaiah chapter 9 about Jesus uh, establishing a prophecy about Jesus and establishing an everlasting kingdom. And maybe more specifically, they're thinking of Daniel. When we go to Daniel chapter 7, we read these words in Daniel's prophecy. He says, In my vision at night I looked... And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So you can see why these people might say what they did. But what they don't understand is that Jesus' everlasting kingdom was yet to be established. They're thinking of it as, oh, we just sort of welcomed a king, so to speak, in the triumphal entry. So how can you say that's going to be taken away? But Jesus knows that he has to go to the cross. He has a victory to win still. And then his kingdom will be established and will not pass away and will never be destroyed. It's sort of ironic in, in light of what we're talking about, that what they're effectively saying, what these people are effectively saying to Jesus is, this is not the way it's supposed to happen, right? We've got, the, we've got this scripture that says, uh, it's going to happen a different way, and this is not the right way. So, so who is the son of man that you're talking about? And then following on from these events, we have the Last Supper. Still a lot going on, right? And as we know, at the Last Supper, Jesus gets up from the table he washes his disciples' feet. He displays absolute humility to them. He does the job that would have been done by the lowliest servant of the house. And he tells them to do likewise. He tells them that they need to be prepared to wash each other's feet, to be servants to each other. And it's at this time as well that he also predicts his betrayal by Judas. So this whole thing must have felt like quite the roller coaster ride. To the disciples. They've been walking with Jesus for perhaps two to three years. We're not sure exactly how long Jesus' public ministry was. They've witnessed miracles. They've heard incredible teaching. Peter, James, and John have witnessed the transfiguration on the mountaintop. They have seen God descend in a cloud and heard the voice of God saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Many people start to follow him. Large crowds gather. Can you imagine, can you put yourself in the sandals of the disciples at this point? Like, whoa, just look at what is going on right now. 
But then we see the Sanhedrin plotting against him. He withdraws from public. He comes back into public, the triumphal entry. And then they have this, the Last Supper, this uh, Passover meal shared among Jesus and his disciples. And he reminds them that he's going to die and he tells them that he's about to be betrayed. So the disciples must have been wondering what is going to happen next or what are we going to do next maybe. And that brings us to the passage that I want to focus on mostly for today, which is starting in John 13 still, verse 33, and through to chapter 14 and verse 14. Let me read to us. It says, Jesus speaking, he says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip makes this extraordinary statement. And I have to imagine this is one of those places where Jesus, one of those times where Jesus exercises his divine nature to suppress the exasperation in his response. Because I don't think I would have responded this calmly. Could I ever have been in this position? Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Right? They've just had these years of, of being with Jesus and seeing these miracles performed, seeing Lazarus raised from the dead, hearing his teaching, and he's like, just show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own, rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father." And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. 
I just want to camp on that last couple of verses for a moment and share an illustration I read in a book a number of years ago about what it means to ask for something in Jesus' name. It's a story about a father who took his son to a fairground for his birthday with a few of his friends. And it's one of those fairgrounds where you go and buy real tickets from the booth, and every time you go on a ride, you hand out a ticket, you go on. Nowadays, you probably have to hand out four tickets for everyone to go on the ride, and it costs you $6, but, you know, whatever it might be. So he would stand, the father would stand at the gate on the way into the ride, and he'd tear off a ticket, hand it to his son, hand it to each of his friends as they go on the ride. So he's doing this, and his son goes past, and his five friends go past, and then there's this other boy stood there with his hand out. And the father kind of stops and looks at him and probably raises an eyebrow, like, hmm. And the son turns around and sees what's going on. He says, oh, it's okay, Dad. I told him he could come on the ride with us. And I thought that's a great little illustration of what it means to ask for something in the son's name. The boy isn't just randomly there asking, like, can I have a ticket as well? He's been told by the son, sure, you can come. The son knows there are tickets, right? And it's his birthday. He can decide how they are. You know, it's been given, entrusted to him to decide how they are used or spent. And so he tells this boy that he meets, you can come too. And so this boy is asking for something um, of the father in the son's name. I just thought that was a neat little illustration. It's not really the main point of today, but I wanted to share it still. So what do I think is the main point that's going on here? What does it seem? Well, bear in mind what I was just saying about the roller coaster ride that is going on at the moment. The disciples probably don't know which way is up, down, left, or right. And I think the main thing that Jesus is trying to do here is to reassure them. He's talking to Peter and saying, will you really lay down your life for me? There's another irony here. Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. And the opposite is about to happen. Jesus is about to lay down his life for Peter's sake which Peter is kind of still, I guess, a little bit in denial about as well. But Jesus says immediately after saying to Peter how Peter is going to deny him, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Compare this to what Jesus says a short while ago, back in, recorded in chapter 12, when he's predicting his death, his own death, He says, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Nope. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus has just recently told the disciples his heart is troubled, but not to let theirs be. This is his job to do. He's the only one who can do it. He's the only one who can pay the price for our sins. And what's really, what really stands out to me about this whole passage is that what Jesus says to the disciples is not that he has a way. He doesn't have a way for them to be saved. He doesn't point to a way for them to be saved or for them to go. Jesus is the way. And there's this discourse between him and Thomas and Philip and the others Thomas saying, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And he's thinking, as we would in human terms, like if I'm going to get somewhere and I need to know how to get there, I need to know where I'm going in the first place. I can't ask Siri to get me somewhere if, I'm not, if I can't tell Siri where I'm going. But Jesus is saying, you know me. I am the way. And so if you follow me, that will lead to the Father. 
And I think there are three categories, maybe more than this, but three categories of people that stood out to me as I was thinking about this. To the believer, this is a statement of reassurance. To the believer, this isn't really a statement of exclusivity. Jesus isn't saying to his disciples so much, you can't do this some other way as just trust me, follow me. I am the way. He's reassuring them. Don't worry, you know what you need to already. To the one who is seeking God, then this is for sure a claim to be investigated. Right? If that's you, if you are seeking God and you're not sure who he is, this is a big claim. And it's one to take to God and to say, God, is this real? Right? To read this, this scripture prayerfully and say, God, if this is true, if Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, would you convict me of that truth? But maybe to the one who rejects God, this sounds like an exclusive statement in a negative way, or perhaps a better word might be an intolerant statement, right? We live in a time where tolerance is a big watchword, a buzzword, and there are many ways in which a modern view of tolerance is really just a cloaked version of intolerance, right? You have to be tolerant by believing what I say, not believing what you want to, in other words. And so to someone who chooses to reject God, who wants to reject God, this probably sounds like, well, how can he say that? How can he be the only way? That's not very fair or tolerant of others or other religions. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's reassuring us. Look at the context again. He's reassuring us that there is a way to God and that he is that way. He says in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I am going. He's talking to his disciples who have been with him two or three years, traveling with him. They know him. So as we read these words as believers in March of 2021, what's the most important thing we can do here? Know the way. The disciples had spent all this time with Jesus. They'd heard his teaching firsthand. They'd seen his miracles. We, praise God, have this recorded for us in Scripture. And we have the history of the church as well. But it's the most important thing, I think, from this to learn is that we need to know God. We need to know Jesus. So how can we do that? How can we know Jesus? Well, there are some simple mechanics that we can do. Mechanics is maybe a, a, uh, the wrong word, actually, a little demeaning. Some simple things that we can do. Let's put it that way. We can read what he said. This series is called The Red Letter Promises. Right, based on the fact that in some Bibles, like this one, the words of Jesus are printed in red. So let's read the red letters. Let's read what Jesus said to us. What did he teach us? What did he call us to? We can read what has been said about him in the rest of Scripture. We can start in the Old Testament with creation. We can read prophecy about him, whether that's in Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, the so-called minor prophets, like Micah and Malachi. We can read what is recorded about him in the Gospels. We can read what is said about him in the, New the rest of the New Testament, the letters of the New Testament. Scripture is God's plan revealed to us, and God's plan revolves around Jesus. He is the linchpin in that whole plan. So Scripture revolves around Jesus. So we can learn about him, we can know him by reading about him. 
That's not enough on its own, though. That's just information at that point. We can listen to him in prayer. I don't know about you, but I am very guilty of praying in speak-only mode. It's something that we do a lot, right? It's like, it's time to pray. Okay, take a breath, think, tell God what I need to tell God. Move on to the next thing. But just as important is to take time in prayer to listen to what he's saying to us. And another thought maybe is to look at those around us or look at the circumstances in which we find ourselves through Jesus' eyes. As we learn about him and how he taught, how he spoke, how he acted, let's ask ourselves the classic question, what would Jesus do? As thought struck me this week, I, this week I was um, teaching a class um, for work, um, a cybersecurity class, and a thought struck me on Friday evening when class had finished that uh, I, I, was, I guess I was thinking about how, um, how can I be not just a helpful teacher but a good witness to the students that I'm teaching. I'm spending six, seven hours a day with them for five days. How can I be a good witness to them? I can't start preaching to them or praying for them in class. That would get me in trouble fairly quickly. But the thought occurred to me, because I took the time to think about this and listen to God, that I don't actually, I don't actually pray for my students. Sounds really obvious. But the thought dawned on me that when I'm te- I don't teach a whole lot anymore, but when I do, I should be praying for my students every morning before class starts. And I'm not. So it was a simple thing that I thought, okay, next time I teach, I'm going to do this every morning. So those are some activities, if you will, some ways in which we can spend time. But I also want to focus on some principles here about what Jesus is saying. And I'm, I'm aware that time is getting on, so I'll try not to do these too, try not to be too rushed. First thing, trust Jesus. Back to verse 1 of chapter 14. Jesus doesn't say, obey me or follow my instructions to start with. He says, trust me. That's his message of reassurance. And you'll notice that I put in square brackets here the word you. You trust in God. That's because in the Greek, this is not a command. It's not an imperative. It's actually just in the present tense. The literal translation of it is, you you do trust in God. Trust also in me. He's reassuring them about what they're doing. Now, I want to be careful here because he does, of course, elsewhere tell us to obey and follow instructions. Those things are important. But they're not what comes first when Jesus is seeking to reassure his disciples and tell them kind of what is the genesis of what they need to do. So that's the first thing. Trust in him. Trust in who he is. Trust that he has, he is the solution. Second thing, believe him. Now it's a very similar statement. But there's a slightly different uh, edge to it here. If we look at verse 11, Jesus says, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So this is similar because it's, it's kind of about trust. But what Jesus is saying specifically here is about believing in a specific truth or statement. And he's saying... Not just trust in who I am, 
but believe the things that I say to you because they flow from who I am and you can trust who I am. So trust Jesus, believe Jesus. The third one is love Jesus. So the verse after where we got to in our reading, verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And what does he mean by love here? Well, this is the agape love that we read of in the New Testament. It's that love, it's that selfless love, that that willingness to be humble, to take yourself out of the picture, to consider someone else or other people more important than yourselves, to want what is best for them, even if it is not what is best for you, or you don't think it's what's best for you. I guess the difference is if we're loving Jesus, it is what's best for us. If we're talking about other people, it may mean just straight up sacrifice on our part in order to demonstrate this kind of love. But notice the way round this statement is put. The first step is to love Jesus, and obedience flows out of love. John touched on this a couple of weeks ago. Love is not generated by being obedient. When John was teaching two weeks ago, he used this analogy of a check engine light in a car. He said, if you're driving your car and the check engine light comes on, you don't take it to the mechanic and say, hey, could you fix that light for me so it doesn't come on, please? You go to the mechanic and say, hey, can you fix the car so that it's running right and then the light won't need to come on? The light is the, you know, the, the measure of obedience or disobedience. And whether things are running right under the hood is what causes the obedience or lack of it, causes the light to come on or to stay off. So the important thing here is not to start by doing Christian things or doing church things. Not to try to know God by being good. Because that's to kind of deny the essence of the gospel, right? If we try to know God by being good, then we're effectively trying to earn our salvation. Now, should we want to be good? Absolutely. Right? I'm not saying don't try to be good. I'm not saying go and sin because you're forgiven anyway. No, that is definitely heresy. But let this obedience flow from trusting God, believing what He says, and loving Him, putting Him above ourselves, exalting Him, saying, I am going to follow you. I'm going to do what you say, even if I would do it differently, because I'm going to trust that the way you would do it is definitely going to be better than the way I would do it. It's interesting to me um, that Paul is like a great example of this. And I just want to highlight a couple of verses um, from Paul's life that, that sort of that draw this out. The first is in Acts 24 when he is on trial before uh, the governor Felix in Caesarea. And he's just been explaining, context to this verse, he's just been explaining that all these things I'm being accused of, actually nobody found me doing them, I wasn't doing them. Right? They're saying I was stirring up a crowd, whatever else. No, I was, I was not. I was in the temple, I was ritually clean, I was doing what we as Jews do. And he says, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. They, in this case, are his accusers, right? So that's Ananias, the high priest. It's some of the elders of the Jewish people and a guy called Tertullus, who is a lawyer. So the high priest lawyered up to go after Paul. 
And he acknowledges that he believes in the law and the prophets. He believes in what God has said about what we should do and should not do, but he follows the way. And the way is not a set of rules or guidelines. The way is Jesus. Similarly, when he's writing to the Corinthians in his first letter, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is in the middle of um, speech about uh, wisdom and eloquent, eloquent speech. And he said, he's basically saying, I may be able to do all of these things, right? It may be good to learn to speak persuasively and eloquently and all the rest of it, but I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This year is going to be a pretty exciting year for our church, I think. There are a bunch of things going on, there are a bunch of things that we're going to be learning. We're going to be learning some tools as well, some, doing some equipping this year. Some of that has, has already started um, among some of the leaders, and um, those are going to be great things to use. Things, tools for sharing the gospel with people, tools for being able to disciple um, one another and, and new believers. Really useful tools, really exciting things to learn. But they're the tools, not the motivation, right? What we need to do first and foremost is put our trust and our belief and our love in Jesus. The good news, and this is where I'll park things for this morning, is that we are not alone in this. This is not in any sense about what we can achieve. Jesus says, right after he said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Now, in two weeks' time, Pastor Dave is going to be teaching about the Holy Spirit, so I'm not going to get ahead of that game today. But for now, I just want to recognize that Jesus doesn't leave us alone in this. This is not about us being able to achieve things. This is about resting and abiding in him. In fact, next week, Brian Racer is going to be sharing with us from John chapter 15 about abiding in Christ and the vine and the branches. I mean, if, if you look at Galatians 5, where we see the fruits of the Spirit listed, the instruction there from Paul to the Galatians is live by the Spirit. It's not follow the rules and you will have this fruit in your life. It is live by the Spirit. Let the Spirit live in you, dwell in you, guide you. So the disciples were concerned here. They were concerned about Jesus leaving them. And they didn't know what was going to happen. They were on this roller coaster of like, this is great, amazing things are happening. This is terrible. Jesus might get killed. Uh, we're going sort of into hiding. Now we're coming back into public. I just don't know what's going on. And Jesus sought to reassure them, not only about they didn't, there wasn't anything else that they needed to kind of do to, to carry out God's plan, but also that they weren't going to be left alone. That if he goes to the Father, he will ask the Father, and the Father will give us another counselor. So my question to you that I would like to leave you with, to think about for a moment. Actually, let me back up. You can, you can read the question now, so it's not a surprise. That's fine. Thank you, Luke. You're right on cue with me. But in a moment, we're going to take communion together. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to give you a moment to think about it. And as we take communion together, 
I want you to offer that up to God in prayer, to say, as we, I'll, I'll pray and give thanks for the, the, uh, the, um, the elements that we have, as Jesus did. And I will leave a pause, and I invite you to offer that thing up to God in prayer. The question is, what am I going to do this week to know Jesus more? Now, that might be just more of the same, right? This isn't about can I do better because it's not about what we can achieve. If you are in a state at the moment where you are having fantastic times in the Word in the morning and spending time in prayer, just keep doing that. For most of us, it probably involves doing something a little different. So that's my challenge to you. Think about what am I going to do this week to know Jesus more. Let's take a moment and let's pray, and then we're going to um, share communion together. If you guys, if you're at home, you can go and uh, grab elements for communion if you want to. If you don't have them to hand or you don't want to get up right now, then um, I would just encourage you, do this at lunchtime. Take communion together, like share, you know, whether it's breaking bread and sharing a cup, whatever you do as you come together for your meal at lunchtime, remember Jesus and his sacrifice for us and lift up the thing to him that you are going to do this week, however big or small it may be. So let's take a moment and let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you have done everything for us that we need. We thank you that our salvation does not rest on us in any way. It rests entirely on you and your goodness, and Lord Jesus, your sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. And we pray that you would guide us and lead us. You would help us to know how we can get to know you more. We pray that you would, um, you would help us to find space to listen to you, find time to read your word, and not just to read it because we feel like we ought to, but to read it dwelling on it. Let it dwell richly in our hearts. We want to know you, Lord. And we pray that you would guide us, that you would be our source and our light and our encouragement. Amen.